0: I I trust it is with the same enthusiasm you're about to reach for your Bible. Great, thank you. And we are in John's Gospel. We're in John chapter 20. You know there are only 21 chapters in John? And like that, we're in John 20. No one said woohoo at that part. Okay, cool, that's good. Alright, we'll, uh, we're going to read this passage of scripture, we're going to have a look at, um, at some artwork to hopefully help us think. And then, and then I really hope that you're able to, to get hold of what the Lord has for us this morning. I believe it's not um, accidental that we've been doing this series in John, that, that as we've been studying it, it's lined up with, particularly with Easter, as well as with a hundred other things over the last two and a bit years. But let's read together from John's Gospel. We're going to read uh, from chapter 20, verse 1. And we're going to read down to verse 18. John chapter 20, verse 1 says this. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, that's how John refers to himself, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Verse 6, then Simon Peter came along behind him, And went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciple went back to where they were staying. Verse 11. Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. This is Matthew's account. Matthew's uh, local name. Matthew is kind of an anglicised version that we use. But his name was Levi and we know that he was one of the 12 disciples. And this is what Matthew writes. Matthew 28, verse 1. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. Worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, there they will see me. Matthew and John give us two very different descriptions. And for only a couple of thousand years now, Christians, of course, have wondered are these passages of Scripture in conflict with each other? One of the answers to this is that Matthew gives us detail about the initial interaction. Which, which the women had had that somehow Mary Magdalene had missed out on as she ran to tell the disciples and they ran to the tomb. Um, I think a more likely explanation is that what we read in John's gospel between verse 11 and verse 18 is actually the description of what happens between Mary coming to the tomb and then Mary going and calling Simon and Peter. So this whole interaction we're about to read this morning quite possibly happened before Peter and John turn up at the tomb. One thing that we see frequently in John's Gospel is that he gives us the short version first and then after that he fills in the detail. We saw that with the arrest of Jesus. We see that in a number of different places. So this morning, if if that's where you're thinking is, put it to the side because I don't want you to miss out on the main point. The main point this morning is not dealing with apparent or supposed textual conflicts. That's not where we're going. We're going to talk about Mary Magdalene. And the moment you go looking for Christian artwork, you come across a, a range of expressions of, of how people have tried to sum up this sort of moment. What we see in the text is, is that it was a new tomb that had not yet been used, that there is a stone that can be put in front of it. And when they crouch down to look inside, then there is actually space in there for two angels to be sitting That's all we know. That's the only descriptive information that we have. And here in the middle of it is this woman who we call Mary Magdalene. That was not her surname, by the way. She was from a town called Magdala. So in the same way that you might have Fred of Kahuna, you would have Mary of Magdala. Sometimes these kind of surnames, uh, we come across them like Leonardo da Vinci, Leonardo from Vinci. Um, like Scott of the Antarctic, except he wasn't from the Antarctic. Um, That's just where he went and died. Um, So it's a bit different with Scott of the Antarctic. I digress. All that we know about Mary Magdalene actually comes from Luke chapter 8. Skip over with me, back to Luke's gospel. And this is really the only background that we have. Right here at the start of Luke chapter 8, it says this. After this, and we'll talk about the this in a moment. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna and many others, these women were helping to support them out of their own means. And so Mary, who, because you've got three different Marys following around Jesus, who ends up Mary Magdalene, um, so that we can identify her, is this person out of whom seven evil spirits had been cast. And we don't have the detail of that story. For a long time in Christian tradition, because this is the first time her name is mentioned, because this is the most descriptive information we have about her, there has been an assumed relationship, because chapter and verse divisions did not exist when Luke originally wrote this letter, that Mary is the woman we find right here at the end of chapter 7. So we find here, go chapter 7 verse 36. I don't know what the heading is in your Bible. Someone's put the heading in this one. Jesus anointed by a sinful woman. But it says here, When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And there's a, there's a whole lot of information about that. It was probably her dowry. It's probably worth a year's wages. As she stood behind him and his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. That, that she is this woman who something dramatic has gone on. And so the link between the end of chapter seven and the start of chapter eight, there is a high likelihood that this person is Mary Magdalene. So we find that the Luke seven and Luke eight passages cause a strong argument. The other argument that we find coming in in church history is over in John chapter 8. And in John chapter 8 we have the woman who is caught in adultery. And there's this understanding that early Christians had that whoever Mary Magdalene was as we're about to to have a look at from her behaviour here something dramatic and powerful had gone on in her life. Whether, it was, whether, whether we're dealing with three separate people, whether the person out of whom Jesus cast seven demons that we know is Mary Magdalene is separate to the woman who was caught in adultery, is separate to the woman who comes and anoints Jesus, we don't know. They are Christian traditions. But something powerful had happened in her life. And so we find in the text then there is this amazing response from her. And again, if you go looking for Christian artwork, depending on what country you're from, is as to the skin tone that Jesus has. So this one is probably not an Anglo-Saxon artwork, but something like this probably is. And for some reason, Jesus is pictured with a shovel and often a hat. And Mary here kind of looks like Queen Elizabeth I. Isn't it interesting? We talk so often don't we, about, you know, in Scripture, you know, you're not going to have a, a graven image of God. You're not going to end up worshipping something. But so often when we come to, to, to trying to figure out, is there a way I can depict this moment in Scripture, we're kind of trapped by our own context. We, we bring everything that's going on in our own life and in the world around us to the text. This was a film from the 1950s. And Jesus has an interesting shade of beard and hair um, and apparently, Mary Magdalene's wearing satin. It looks like satin. We get lithographs again where Jesus has shampooed hair and looks very, very majestic, and we don't see the scars on his body. We see other depictions where, again, it's highly stylized. This is not supposed to represent realism, but it's something for us who follow Jesus to sit and go, what is going on in this moment? So let's talk about this lady and what she says. You have your Bible open in front of you, I hope. John chapter 20. What is Mary's expectation when she turns up with the other women? What does she expect to find? We know that the tomb had a large stone pushed in front of it and we know that a guard of soldiers had been placed there. She turns up with the other women with aloes and with spices to anoint the body of Jesus. Her expectation is that she's going to have to have some conversation with these soldiers, that they will let her in. And when she turns up, an earthquake has happened. Perhaps an angel is sitting on the rock in that moment. The soldiers, the scriptures say, were like dead men. And what is it that Mary says? What is the first phrase that you have recorded in your Bible? Have a look at the the words in front of you. How Mary describes what has gone on. In John's account, she runs back to, to Peter and to John. And what is it that she says to them? Someone tell me, please. They have taken him. And we don't know where they have put him. The word, therefore, they have taken him is a really short term in the original language, and and it's a poorly pronounced Aro, And it literally means he has been taken up. When Jesus says to the cripple at the pool of Bethesda, after he heals him, he says, take up your bed and go back to your home. That's the word. Take it up. Take up your bed and go back to your home. When Matthew describes after the feeding of the 5,000, where they go and they they collect all the scraps and they fill 12 baskets. That, That phrase in your Bible, that they took up 12 baskets full, is the exact same phrase. It got collected, it got received, it got scooped up, it got taken up. When Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone will come after me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. It's the same term. It's a word that was used all the time. When we look at Mary's words, we, as it reads in English, it can sound very accusatory. They have taken the Lord and we don't know where they have put him. That's not the way it reads in the original language. It's an artifact of being translated into English. Her main problem is not that they have done it. Her main problem is he's not there and we don't know where he is. Her problem is a geographical problem. The issue that she has is with the location of Jesus. At this point, she's not concerned with blaming people. She wants Jesus. They have taken him and we don't know where they have put him. So then we find the angels ask her in verse 13. Have a look in your Bible. John chapter 20 verse 13. They ask her, woman, why are you crying? What a stupid question they would have known full well while she was crying. Up in verse 9, it says that the disciples, after they turned up and they left, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. In Mary's mind, Jesus is still dead. Resurrection is not obvious to anyone at this point, except the angels and except to Jesus. And, and Mary has turned up and she She's speaking to the angels and they say why are you crying and then she repeats this phrase Aero moi kurios taken up is my lord taken up is my lord and where he has been placed i don't know again it is not accusatory at this point my Lord has been taken away and I don't know where they have put
1: him. What does she want from the angels? What is it that she's responding to them
0: about? What is the theme that is her priority? It's really simple. She wants the geographical location of Jesus' body. And maybe she thinks the Roman soldiers took Jesus That's unlikely if she saw them sprawled on the ground like dead men, by the way. Maybe she believes that these angels, amongst others, have come and snatched his body away. I don't know where they've put him. Verse 14, at this she turned around. In the original language it says that she twisted around. And saw Jesus standing there, but did not recognize him. And he asks her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? He knows exactly what's going on. Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said. And, and I want you to focus on these words, please, this morning. You are about to read some of the most beautiful words Uh, about the adoration and the love of Jesus that you will find in the New Testament. And she says this, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. If you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. The angels ask her the question. She responds, I don't know where he is. Jesus is three feet away, standing behind her. But she's convinced that he is still dead at this point. And the angels have not sprung to her assistance to tell her what's going on. Jesus is listening to her. Jesus is closer than she can imagine. And this is not a performance by Mary. This is not a performance by Mary Magdalene to try and impress Jesus. This is not manufactured. She thinks he's the groundskeeper. She's not under any obligation to try and summon some kind of energy or put on any kind of Christian mask. This is her at her most raw. And she says, if, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put me. Tell tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Tell me where he is and I will go to him and I will pick him up for
1: myself. Let that sink in, please, just for a couple minutes this morning.
0: We know that Mary had received an extraordinary life change from Jesus. But in this moment, Jesus can offer her nothing. She is not coming looking for Jesus because there's a promise of getting rich or becoming powerful or influential or getting respected. And it's let me take a tangent just for a couple of seconds here. Sometimes, and we talk about this every other, every other week, There is a way that Christianity is presented where it's like dangling a carrot in front of someone and saying, just give your life to Jesus and you'll get all this stuff. I had a a powerful negative experience this week. I made the decision to sit down and deliberately look up Christian prosperity teaching. It's really depressing and I got really angry because it's the opposite of what we see here with Mary. There is a way that Christianity is presented to say, you know what, give Jesus your money and he'll give you back more. And, And the human heart, the greed of the human heart is used and is baited to try and manipulate people into following Jesus. And we've got to be so careful. We need to check our hearts this morning. We're going to be using Mary Magdalene as a reference point for ourselves. She is our sister. She is in Christ. She is the person who ends up being the first commissioned missionary of Jesus. For a short period of time here, she is the only commissioned evangelist of the good news of Jesus Christ. There is only one on planet Earth, and it's Mary Magdalene, just for a couple of minutes. have a look at what's going on in her heart because it's not it's not the lure of you know what i'm going to become part of a church or i'm going to become part of a christian organization or you know what i'm i'm going to to use any any of this stuff as a tool she's not in it for what she can get she's not in it because she's She's expecting Jesus to give her something. Jesus can offer her nothing in her mind. Jesus is still dead in her mind. And here she is. Her soul is disturbed. She has lost him. There's probably a feeling of abandonment that always happens when people we love die, let alone the feeling of turning up and he's not there. Deceived, ripped off. Her soul is disturbed. She is not in control of her world. And this is her response. Tell me where he is. I will go to him and get him.
1: You tell me where he is and I will go and I will get Jesus. What rises up in your own heart, I wonder? If our world had been shell-shocked in the way that her world
0: had been shell-shocked, her entire life for the last couple of years was wrapped up in following this guy around and in listening to his teaching. Imagine you woke up tomorrow morning and this country was at war. And this building was gone. And Christians were being hunted and persecuted and it was illegal to gather Would the words out of your mouth, would that thing rising up in your heart be this thing that we read about right here? You tell me where Jesus is and I will go to him. You tell me where he is and I'm going to go and I'm going to be in that place. And you know what? I'm going to take what I have left and I will worship him yet, though he may give me nothing for it. I'm going to worship him. I'm going to adore him. It's Challenging, isn't it? Moments like this reflect back to us sometimes the hollowness of some of the things that we've got caught up in. Of the things that maybe we've allowed to become more important in our life than the pursuit of Jesus for Jesus' sake. It can be really convicting. And Jesus hears her. She does not love Jesus only because he gives her what she wants.
1: How little we understand sometimes. So what do we do with this? How do we take this and and allow it to sink into our own
0: hearts? I ask that you would take Mary's response and use it like a mirror, as the Apostle James writes. That scripture is supposed to be like a mirror. We hold it up we have a look at the reflection and if something needs modifying, we modify it. I ask that you look at Mary's
1: response and hold up what is going on in your own heart and go, what's out of place here? What is it I see in myself that is perhaps being highlighted? If this is the passion that Mary has, How
0: does this compare to my own passion? Have I grown cold? Have I gotten sidetracked? Has something else got its hook in me? Mary is not trying to comfort herself. She's trying to worship
1: Jesus, even in the midst of such despair and her soul being so disturbed. It's a scary thing, isn't it? Maybe we don't like what we see going on in our
0: own hearts. Let me give you an encouragement in this, though. Why did Mary love Jesus so much? Mary Magdalene, the scripture says, out of whom Jesus had cast seven demons. She loved much because Jesus had come in and had done something extraordinary in her. Remember, she's not loving Jesus out of obligation. I don't want you to leave here this morning going, oh, God, I love Jesus more because I'm, I'm being pressured into it by my pastor. That's not the way it works. But if you're going, you know what? I don't have that passion. Maybe I used to. Maybe I remember it. Maybe I've never had that passion. If that's where you are this morning, I encourage you to simply sit and spend time with the Lord. Let him in. If it is true what we have in our Christian tradition about Mary Magdalene, Jesus coming into her life may well have been the first time that a man simply loved her without an agenda. Not because he wanted something from her, but he loved her because he loved her. Jesus did not turn up and cast seven demons out of Mary because Jesus needed to feel better about himself. Because Jesus needed something from Mary. He loved her without an agenda. And that radically transformed her life. We need to be very careful as well as representatives of Jesus that when we love on other people, when we engage them, when we reach out to them, when we offer them hospitality, when we offer them food and accommodation and and just our time that we are not simply investing in people because we have an agenda? Do I only love that other person because I need to feel better about myself?
1: Do I only love that other person because you know what, actually I'm in a crisis and I want to comfort myself? Do I only love that other person because I'm hoping to extract some money from them?
0: Or because if I hang out with them, I'm going to look more impressive or more respectable or be more powerful or influential. That is not the way Jesus loves. That is not the way Jesus loves you. And before anything else, please sit, sit with the Lord and let him remind you of how passionately he loves you. Mary turns around and Jesus speaks her name and immediately she knows who it is. This is a statue carved in around about the year 1450 by a guy called Donatello, who was not a Ninja Turtle. And this this statue is was at the time incredibly... Uh, it caused a lot of conflict because it's confronting. This is a statue of Mary, Magdal- uh, Mary Magdalene, and it's carved from timber. And a statue this realistic that was not typified beauty had never been sort of publicly shown before. In uh, Eastern Christian tradition, they have this story. And again, we, we don't know the truthfulness of it. That as Christianity spread across the world, Mary Magdalene in the early church put everything aside and she went into the desert for 30 years to spend time in continual repentance, because so so touched was she by the love of Jesus, and that's what this statue is supposed to depict. This person who, who has been fasting and praying and sacrificing stuff going on in their life, so
1: so great is their love of Jesus. And again, it's equally confronting.
0: Standing before a statue like this, you imagine to go, here is what a person looks like maybe who is so passionately in love with Jesus. I don't like what I see. Art is supposed to reflect back to us something of ourselves. Have you ever met one of those Christians who is so passionately in love with Jesus it makes you uncomfortable and you just want them to shut up? Because you go, you know what, I'm feeling, I'm feeling uncomfortable here. Because maybe I'm not feeling on fire for the Lord right now. You know what? Dude, you're really stirred up about mission and about ministry. And you know what? I'm, I'm just in a comfortable little corner at the moment. I don't, I don't really want to spend time with this person anymore. It can be confronting. How will we pray? Not just this morning as a gathered family. But how will you pray this week? When you're in that space between sleeping and waking, in that twilight space where we talk to the Lord, where we pray early in the morning or late at night or together in a church building on a Sunday, how will you pray in a way that will transform the relationship you have with Jesus? Because it's easy for us to pick this up. You guys know I do this all the time and go, oh yes, yes, that's interesting. Okay, cool, close my Bible and now I'm going home for the week. And to go away unchanged. I don't believe we're supposed to go away unchanged. So how will this change the way you pray this week? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would stir up in our hearts an extraordinary dissatisfaction. What we see in the scriptures would be true. That we are not satisfied with what this world has to offer until
1: we place our hands on your feet for ourselves. Lord Jesus, I pray that that we would have the capacity to live extraordinary lives in
0: this world for you and your kingdom and your glory, but that we would not be satisfied with anything other than you yourself. That the words we have read this morning from Mary would be the words of our own heart. You tell me where Jesus is and I'm going there and I will get hold of him for myself and I'll be satisfied with nothing else. Lord Jesus, where we have given space in our heart for stupid, meaningless, insignificant things, material wealth, or notoriety or fame or supposed influence, Lord Jesus, would you shine that light in and set us free to live lives that matter eternally? Lord Jesus, where we need to be healed, would you heal us? Where there is stuff in our heart that needs to be torn out by the roots because it got hold of us and it has displaced you, Lord Jesus, would you heal us? Lord Jesus, where there is hurt, where there is unforgiveness, where there is anger. Lord Jesus, would you come in and minister to us? The scriptures say a smoldering wick you will not snuff out.
1: A bruised reed you will not break. Would you come in? Would you restore us? But Lord Jesus, would you cause us to be enthusiasts? Would you cause us to be passionate about you yourself? Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to be real with ourselves and with each other. And I thank you so much that you are doing that in
0: the lives of so many people who gather here. Where we are not passionate, we talk about it. Where we've been caught up in stuff, we talk about it. And Lord, you shine your light in and you set us free. Lord Jesus, would would we continue to be a group of people who are passionately pursuing you?
1: We ask this in your precious name. Amen.